Welcome to the Anchored by Faith podcast, a Reformed Baptist podcast with the goal to hold to Scripture to be conformed to the image of God. My name is Colton Wright, and my co-host over here... Logan Batisti. And we just stuffed our faces with some leftover Thanksgiving food. Yeah, you had so much turkey left over. I think you had a total like 41 pounds or something on Thanksgiving. Yeah, you should... The moral of this story is you should make sure when you buy a turkey that you check the weight. Right. And I really didn't even have that much turkey this year. I had Thursday, Thanksgiving, and then I had one last weekend. But yeah, I haven't really haven't had that much turkey tonight. I think no. that's the most turkey I've ate. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We've ate quite a bit of turkey. But like you said, we had like 40 pounds. So we... Uh, I gave two bags out to some other people, and then what had happened was I had a, what I thought was a 12-pound turkey, was actually a 26-pound turkey. Don't ask me how you get those two mixed up, but somehow I was convinced it was a 12-pound turkey, and my father-in-law bought a 15-pound turkey, and so, yeah. 41 pounds, folks, Mm -hmm. 41. But we smoked it in, I think, eight or nine hours. Um, It wasn't too bad. That's nice. Pellet stoves people might say they're cheating but they're amazing i mean you don't really have to pay attention to them the whole time and you can just yeah base it off wireless i think that a pellet stove would be a great birthday gift for you you know or maybe christmas i think birthday would be the more allowable one but we got to get a house first before that that's a ways away and i don't think my wife would since i just spent the 75 bucks on the smoker and grill a lot last winter and i've only used it like a couple of times well but if you got a better smoker you'd use it more often see yeah possibly that's a way to put it i guess see kyra kyra (laughs) you know hmm, just saying you're not airing for me right now (laughs) (laughs) how was your thanksgiving oh it was really good ate a lot of food hung out with amy's chris's family she had a bunch of them come up and then played games on Friday night. And we got to see the Bartrons earlier in the week, too. I mean, the worst part was Everett and Remington got sick for a second. So yeah. they were running a fever Thursday night. Remington always looks sick anyway. No. <laughs> That's what happens when you have three boys. <laughs> uh, no, that stinks. Being sick on Thanksgiving, that really stinks. Yeah, but they were fine the next day. So it was all right. But then I worked most of the weekend and then sunday i had off but we stayed home and chilled out most of the day after she got done working and we watched jingle all the way that's a great christmas movie i really enjoyed it arnold schwarzenegger and it's funny and turbo man yeah Mm -hmm. i just want i think it'd be really cool to get a real authentic turbo man action figure Just put them out every Christmas. Oh, like Elf on the Shelf? Like Elf on the Shelf, but it's Turbo Man on a shelf. I was wondering where you were going to go with that. (laughs) I didn't think you were going to have a word to rhyme with it. Uh, No, I can't think of anything to rhyme. Nor I'm going to try my rhyming abilities. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited. We're finally on iTunes. We were finally on iTunes. Yeah, I was pretty stoked. Finally came through. Yeah, and we got 200 downloads now. So that's exciting because that means roughly about 40 downloads an episode. So I'm excited with that. Yeah, I mean, I, it's not viral by any means. No, but, but I don't even know 40 people. 
I think you know 40 people. That's debatable. I mean, I guess it depends on your definition of knowing. (laughs) I definitely don't know 40 people that are listening to this podcast for sure. Yeah, that's fair enough. Like I said, I maybe know of like 10 to 12-ish. I can't even guarantee that many. Oh, I'm not guaranteeing. I'm going on a limb (laughs) on... You know, I I know of like five or six for sure, pretty yeah. solid, and the rest of them are, yeah, yeah. That's, that's just, I just rounding. But we're super thankful for you guys listening. In fact, tonight's actually gonna be the wrapping up episode for our first series that we're going through, which we've been going through what the five points of Calvinism are because it's a part of Reformed theology, and we just wanted to know or show people where we're coming from and where we're explaining and where we get our beliefs because we've kind of been criticized in the past for thinking this way or believing this way so (laughs) we kind of just want to show where it comes from how we studied it and how we looked at it and obviously we don't believe that it's the only way to jesus because no it's not but we believe that it consistently interprets scripture Mm. we believe this is the correct view But at the same time, this is a secondary issue. This does not affect salvation. If you hold a different view, you know, whether it's traditionalism, Arminianism, Molinism, we embrace you as brothers and sisters in Christ. This isn't a, you know, you're either Reformed or you're not a Christian. You know, we we understand this is one of those gray areas. Right. So the first night we went through the T, which is total depravity. Mm Mm-hmm. Which basically means that men is so far fallen in nature that he can't choose God, but it's because of his, he loves his own nature so much, his own sin nature, that Mm -hmm. he doesn't want to follow God. That God still is out there and God places it there, but man would rather choose himself than God. Man is totally dead, completely dead spiritually. And then the next point was unconditional election. Which it's pretty controversial point. The T, not that many people, I guess, contemplate that. But the unconditional election is definitely a point in which there's a lot of contention. And unconditional election simply states that because we are totally dead and we don't pursue God, that God is gracious and he elects a certain people despite any goodness in them. So there is no condition in which they have met this election, and he then bestows grace upon them. Right, and I know that people want to point towards the fact that there should be a condition that it should that God shouldn't have chosen us, or it's not fair that He chose us in eternity past. But we got to remember that God is omniscient, and God mm. knows everything from the beginning. There's nothing He's learned over time. There's nothing He hasn't seen into the future, mm-hmm. and. The, it's rough to hear that. It is. And the fairness aspect, I hear that a lot. You know, that's not fair. But we don't, let's be honest, we don't want fairness. Because fairness is judgment. Fairness is condemnation. Because we are fallen. Absolutely. I mean, the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. I mean, how gracious is it that for every time we lie or every time we lost it or every time that we've done this, that God doesn't kill us right then and there. That's a wonderful hand of restraint. I mean, that's more mercy than I could say I ever. I I, I give most people. Most people curse you, and what's your instinct reaction? 
you know, it's to instantly knee jerk. You want to go after him. You want to say something. You want to do something. And we do that all day long to God. Yeah. And we've even gone to point out so far that our thoughts cause sin just as much as our actions do. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's multiple scriptures that have pointed back to that thought that even if we think about being with a woman, that it is lust. Mm -hmm. And I know that that is something I've had problems with, that I've struggled with, and that, I mean, still do sometimes. Because, I mean, it's hard to get past our thoughts. It's hard to lay hold of them and Mm -hmm. to keep our thoughts and minds focused on God. All right, so next one is we're on the L, right? Yes. So limited atonement. So obviously, if the T and the U are that way, then there's only a limited elect that God has chosen. So limited atonement means that the atonement was destined or made for some and not for everyone. Mm -hmm. And that it only applies to a limited people who we call the elect. Mm -hmm. And then to remember that it may be if you haven't seen the other ones and this is kind of in your face and you're saying, whoa, uh, to give a rehearsal a little bit or to rehash some things. Remember that everyone within orthodoxy, within right Christian belief, does limit the atonement. You have to. It's either limited, again, in its effect or its scope. It is applied to everybody, but doesn't affect really anybody. Or it is applied to a somebody, and it affects them completely. So that's the two orthodox positions. There is an unorthodox position, which is universalism. universalism. You're right. Universalism that says that Christ died for all, thus all are saved and nothing matters. Essentially, it doesn't matter what you do in life. You will be saved. And there is some churches around that are like that. So, but that is outside of Christian Orthodoxy. Christian Orthodoxy. And so we've got to the L, and then we come to the I. Which was Irresistible Grace, which we covered last Saturday, I think it was, maybe two Saturdays ago. It was. I think it was two Saturdays ago. Yeah. Or Friday night. It was a Friday night. Yeah, it was. It was last Friday. Because I had to work the next day. It wasn't. It was two weeks ago. It was two two Fridays ago. Right. So, Irresistible Grace, which states that God, um, because, remember, you have the U and the L, which, unconditional election, the limited atonement, that those whom he elects, he draws irresistibly. He bestows grace upon them, and that grace is sweet, aromic, and it brings them to him. Right, and it's not like he's dragging them, kicking and screaming, he's taken their hearts and turned them to flesh and made them want to come to God. It's not that the person wants to choose themselves anymore, but he has the ability to want God, to love God, because otherwise we just want ourselves in our sin nature. Mm -hmm. He has changed the affections of the heart. He has made you a new creation. We call it the, I mean, what, what separates Reformed from other views is that we believe regeneration precedes faith. So you are regenerate first, and then faith comes. Right, absolutely. You don't have faith, and then you are regenerate. So you are made a new creation, thus you now have faith. 
So, and that brings us to today. Which is P, the perseverance in the saints, which is probably one of the least controversial points of Reformed theology. That is very true. Yeah, I know that there are plenty of people who agree with this. Um, I know that there are some people who don't. Like the General Baptist denomination, they believe that one could lose their faith. And obviously, we don't agree with that. I know that there are some Southern Baptists who don't believe that. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that there's other denominations that I don't know of who commonly don't hold to this point as well. But we kind of want to go to the Second London Baptist Confession of 1689. And we kind of believe that chapter 17 of that really sums up or gives clear point of what perseverance in the saints. Chapter 17 is rightly titled of the perseverance of the saints. So if you have your second London Baptist confession just sitting by your side, you can open it up. <laughs> Which it is free online. So if you go to Doctrine and Devotion, I know that they also have a link on their webpage that pulls up the 1689 as well. Yeah. And also there's 1689.com, which is actually what I got pulled up right here on, on my right. You can actually pull it up. So this is not a resource that is out of your hands. You can actually get it very easily. So anyway. All right. Let's start with section one. Those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance from which the source he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock by faith they have fastened upon. Notwithstanding, though, unbelief and the temptation of Satan, the sensible sight of the light and love of God, may for all time be clouded and obscured from them. Yet he is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy the purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palm of his hand, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. So, difference is, like, mine doesn't have a break there. I guess yours does. Yes, sorry. This one had a break in there. (laughs) I was like, this that is, makes sense of why you looked at me like I was supposed to say something or read. Yours is uh yours is a lot nicer put. Mine's still this is the old English. Right. The I got lucky and the Reformation Study Bible has been super helpful and has the Westminster Confession, the Belgic Confession, Cans of Dort, and the sixteen eighty nine Baptist Confession in it. I'm grateful that one of my old pastors pointed me towards it and it's kinda helped in my journey. But I'll go ahead and read on, and we'll go to chapter 2. This perseverance of the saints depends not upon their own free will, but upon the immutability of the decree of election, flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father upon the efficiency of the merit and intercessions of Jesus Christ in union with Him, the oath of God, the abiding of His Spirit, and the seed of God within them and the nature of the covenant of grace, from all which arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. I love the way you take those two sections and to to break it down and 
essentially God, those whom he has accepted, those whom he has called. I mean, I think of Romans 8.30 here. Those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Isn't that called like the golden chain or something like that? The golden chain of redemption. Right. And that chain cannot be broken, which is a beautiful thing. I mean, it's the security, it's the promise, and it leads Paul to say, you know, if God is for us, who shall be against us? Right. It just points back and reflects upon how if God is doing all this, then what is there that can stop it? Yeah. I mean, there's nothing. Yeah. Because... It's God doing the work. It's God calling. It's God drawing. It's God redeeming. Mm-hmm. And it just points back to how graceful and merciful he is in the state of where we are, that he still does this for us. When in fact, he probably should have just wiped us out and started anew. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You have from the T, the U, the L, and the I, all is God's grace. And it's all monergism. I know that's a buzzword, but it is monergism it's all god working he's the only work going on here and through the person's variance of the saints it's the same it's by god's grace that irresistible grace that he's given to you that you will persevere to the end that you will slowly be conformed to the image of his son right and i know that there are some people who are going to raise up an objection to say that well if god is what makes you persevere what work do you do or what work do I do in our own faith? Maybe I should just sit back and watch and God will get me into heaven no matter what. We'll point this out, but that's not the truth of what we're talking about. There is nowhere in scripture that we should not evangelize, that we should not walk in our faith and that there are not disciplines for us to do as Christians. Mm -hmm. We should do those means. God has ordained the means by which we, we evangelize by which we grow, by which we are sanctified. I mean, it's that distinction between justification and sanctification, not to get really deep and theological here, but justification is the act of being declared righteous before God, but sanctification is the act of becoming righteous before God. And at some point, sanctification, which is such a beautiful doctrine that is lost so much today, Sanctification is so prominent, it is a for sure act in the sight of God from the moment you're justified. Because, why? Because he knows the end. The end of the justification will be your final sanctification. But that plays out. There's other points in between there. God slowly sanctifies you. So, you grow and you grow and you grow in this holiness and God separates other things in your life and grows you into what he wants you to be. So he uses those means to accomplish what his goal is. It's, I think, scriptures point time and time again that if you're sitting back saying, well, I'm just going to not do this, you look at the parables of the... I think the one that comes to mind for me is like, the parable of the talents. That's what I was trying to... I was going to say minus, and I was like, that's not it. It was... Yeah, the talents, talents of where one man's given 10 talents, another five, I think, maybe, mm. or something else, and then one person's given one. And the 10 and the five, they double 
or at least increase their profits of what they were given. Mm -hmm. But the one man who was given one was afraid of what his master would do. So he hid it Mm -hmm. and didn't do anything with it, but just put it in the ground and left it there. And the master criticizes this person for doing it because he, at least he could have put it in the bank and there would have been interest on it. And I think that the parable points to the fact of what we're given with salvation is that we're not supposed to just sit there and do nothing. Mm-hmm. We are given abilities. We're given things to do. And I know that there are Christians out there and even me that have abilities that we don't put to use enough. And Hopefully this is kind of a wake up call to help out and push forward together in that sanctification. Cause I mean, that's one of the goals of this podcast is that we're being conformed to the image of God, that this process of sanctification means we grow spiritually together. Mm-hmm. And trust me, there's still going to be hiccups. There's still going to be mess ups. Absolutely. But it's learning how to push past those and learning how, to work on them as Christians together, going through scripture, going through history, going through theology, yeah, and just interacting with one another, which is why Christianity is something that we shouldn't do alone. No, we're not called to be solo Christians. We're called to be planted within the body of Christ. You know, we are called to be members in the body. Um, we're to have unity in the body. We are to be holy in the body. We are to be one in the body. We are not to be separate. You are not under a tree reading your Bible, Christian. If you're doing that, then you know the arm that's severed doesn't live very long. Neither does the leg, nor does the head. No part lives if it's severed from the body. So don't expect to be a solo Christian and be able to withstand the storms of anything. Right. There will definitely be some times where life comes back at you. Yeah. And you definitely need friends. You definitely need other Christians, brothers and sisters of Christ to pray for you, to help encourage you with advice from the word, Mm -hmm. to help plant you in the word. Mm -hmm. And God uses those means to speak to you himself through those. I mean, don't get me wrong. There could be times where you might feel like you hear God's voice in your head or God's words or feel like God's speaking to you. But God uses people just as much as he does himself. Mm -hmm. I would say we are the instruments, you know, that he's chosen to use. He's revealed himself in these latter days through his son. And by revealing himself through his son, his son has given the father what is the son giving the father? He's, he's giving the father a bride, or he's giving the father a body. He's collecting, he's he's gathering. I guess I'd say that's the opposite way. The father's gathering the body for Christ. But anyway. Right, to be a bride on the last to, day. That was my yeah. point of my jumbledness there, is the father is drawing a people to Christ. Now, he's gathering those people to be a beautiful, holy people to his son. That's for a purpose. It's for a wonderful purpose. And that purpose, you can't be away from that and expect to somehow ride on the curtails and be entered in. Right. So as we're going through this, some verses and stuff that are for perseverance of the saints, we just want to make sure that you understand that this doesn't mean that you can just sit back on your coattails or 
sit back and be a fan of what's going on. Mm-hmm. That this is something that God ultimately does the work and helps point you towards. But there are things in your life that are going to change and you're going to give fruits of what happens in that change in your life. Mm-hmm. Because the way that Christians, we see one another become Christians is by what fruits are you living in your life? Mm-hmm. And if you don't see those fruits, then you might want to consider about what's going on in your salvation or mm-hmm. what you really believe. Because if you believe that you've been saved, then you want to repent. Mm-hmm. And if you don't repent and aren't repenting, then you really need to start talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. You need to talk to people in your church and really need to talk with God mm-hmm. and say, God, I'm so sorry. Because I need to humble myself. Mm-hmm. Because I've been living in sin. Because if you look at Romans and twelve two, yeah, Romans twelve two, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Keep that in mind as we're going through this, because that God transforms our mind to figure out what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. To be able to discern what is the will of God. I mean, that's something that's talked about in Colossians as well, as we're told to be new creations and to put on the new clothes. Mm-hmm. You don't pour old wine into new wine skins. There's this new, there's this newness. Right. And trust me, listening to this is kind of just like a check because it happens that there's times where I'm not the best at following this. I mean, that happens when you're preaching. That happens when you're reading the word. And sometimes mm-hmm. when you get away with it, you're reminded, oh my goodness, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. But that's part of perseverance of the saints, luckily. You know, and it's a wonderful thing that we can set back and look at this doctrine of perseverance of the saints and understand that God has worked, you know, by himself, really, and through all this. So him working... We have brought nothing to the table. There's nothing that we have done. There's nothing that we need to check ourselves to. But God has done this work. And we can rest assured that if he has done this work, he will complete this work. And just as we read from Jeremiah 31, where he calls the creation into account to validate his new covenant, this covenant that he's placed, um, that he's instituted, that he is taking out or he's putting his commandments in his people, and that he is causing them to walk in his ways, and that They will be his people, and that is all God's work, and he will do that, and he will not leave us. If he has started this work, he will finish this work, and he calls that creation order into effect in order to say, look at everything around me. This is a guarantee for for what I've done for you, and we can rest assured that since God has done all this, no matter how we stumble, no matter how we fall, as the uh, confession said, yet he is still the same, and they shall be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they be engraved upon the palm of his hand, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. That is sure. Mm-hmm. It kind of reminds me of God's covenant with Abraham, or Abram at the time, and it's in Genesis 15. When God 
caused a deep sleep to fall on Abram after he had cut up some animals for a sacrifice. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go back to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Notice there that God doesn't have Abram walk through those pieces of animals holding on to the torch or holding on to the pot. Mm-hmm. It's the torch in the pot, which God put there that God is saying, I am the one who's going to fulfill this covenant. Mm-hmm. It's not based on you, mm-hmm. but I am going to give this land to your people. It's crazy to think that God does this. Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful thing. It, I mean, what are you speechless that when you, we serve a God that is so loving that he did it all. He's done every ounce of it. Why? Because he knew that, well, we'd mess it up. Well, I think this is even before Joseph came, comes around. And mm-hmm. it, what, Joseph is third generation from Abram, I think? Is that how that works? So it'd be Isaac, Aaron, Isaac, Joseph. Jacob, Joseph. Jacob, yeah, yeah, yeah. Third generation. I guess it's third generation from Abram. Yeah. But God's already saying that they're going to be in Egypt. He doesn't specifically say Egypt, but he's talking about Egypt at this point in time of when Israel is there as a sojourner. Mm-hmm. And what happens 400 years later? Moses comes about in Exodus. It's crazy. That God fulfilled this. Yeah. He was with Israel the whole time. I mean, this time they weren't Israel. But he was He was with He was with them. He was with his people. Absolutely. He never deserted his people. No, and he was there yeah. the whole time. I mean, that's the faithful God that we serve. That's the wonderful, faithful God that we serve. And so that's why when we can come to this perseverance of the saints, we can rest assured that God has promised these things and uh, when god promises something i'm gonna rest in that and just you know put my hat on it all right because i know that i mess it up for sure yeah all right so besides those verses is john chapter 10 right yes john chapter 10 so john chapter 10 verses i think we said 27 through 29 i lost my list i'm sorry You're good. John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So, Christ here, I mean, God in the flesh, 
stands here and says, my sheep hear my voice, and they will follow me. Well, we could say that's irresistible grace. They will follow him, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. Man, all that comes to the Son will not perish. Right. And I mean, we talked about how in the past episodes that God has given these people to Jesus, and Jesus is not going to lose one of them. Not one. And to the wonderful image here is the hand where he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Well, it's God in the flesh who's talking here, Jesus Christ. And he says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. But just to put some more emphasis on it, he says, my father who has given them to me, the father who's given them to me, who's drawn them, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. The Father's hand is over the Son's hand. I mean, you are like doubly secured. There is no one that can snatch you out of God's hand. Right. It's impossible. It's impossible. And I know that there's people who disagree with that, but I mean, Scripture seems to be pretty clear here that this is the case. Yeah. When he says something... Very explicit, like, I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. That's a very explicit statement. He has clearly stated something. And keep in mind, too, if you look at the Great Commission, what is the first thing that Jesus talks about? It's not talking about going and making disciples, the first thing. The first thing he says in that, all authority Mm -hmm. has been given to me on heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. All authority. That's been given to him from God. Of course, which is himself. But the Father gives the Son the authority that he has and glorifies in him. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. He has all authority. Everything. Even though he already had it from the beginning of the world. From the beginning. But he purchased it again. It's a double seal. He has everything. There's nothing out of his hand. Right. And to think that we could lose that to walk away from it when he changes us. Yeah. I mean, I really like illustration of being hit by a semi. If you're a person going out, you're not going to get hit by a semi and be able to walk up afterwards. You're not going to be able to get up and go back to what you were doing in the Mm -hmm. first place. I mean, mean, even a normal car. Yeah. I mean, a Volkswagen bug, it's still going to hurt. Yeah. Especially (laughs) if it's going full speed. Yeah. But our God is so much more powerful that and interacts more powerfully than that. Yeah. And I understand that people want to say that we can choose to follow God or not. But what happens when God has chosen that person to come to saving faith? Mm-hmm. When God wants that person, can he not draw that person in? Yeah. I think that it completely eliminates when someone says, well, you can choose not to. Again, you're focusing on the physical elements of conversion. You're not understanding the the spiritual element of conversion, this new creation. Right. We think of it as simple persuasion terms. Yeah, that's not true. He's not wooing you. He's drawing you. You are coming to him. He has done divine heart surgery. He has taken out your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh. Now, what person says, no, I want the heart of flesh, and then rips their heart out and puts the stone back in? No. That's not something that happens because your eyes have been opened to seeing the mysteries of God. Yeah. And that's something that's kind of not uncommon in Scripture, especially in the New Testament. 
people will point towards the messianic secret of this and say it's traditional hardening. But it's also at the same point in time that God revealed things to even Peter, even to his disciples, mm-hmm. that he didn't point towards the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Especially, I mean, you look at the time of the transfiguration, you look at the time on the road to Emmaus. I think that's where he walked with his two disciples mm-hmm. for a second. And then like took until he broke the bread for them to realize who he was and he was gone. Mm-hmm. Because God reveals to us in spirit knowledge. Mm-hmm. I mean, we could read his scripture all day long and we might get some points from it, yeah. And we might get a good head knowledge. But until that head knowledge registers with our heart knowledge, it's not going to make any sense at all. Yeah. I think we're a little early, but I think just keep that in mind when we go to our objections later. Another um, verse. Yeah. I got Philippians 1, 6. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Notice that's the emphasis there. He will do this thing, not you. He will. It's on his promise. Again, just as he promised Abraham or Abram, he will complete this task. So you are again in the Father and the Son's hand. Yeah. It's just points back towards that over and over again, how God is grateful and still works inside of us to complete within us his work of salvation, this work of sanctification after he justifies us and gives us his righteousness. Next one. Second Timothy one twelve. For this reason, I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. And I'll go ahead and skip to 2.19 as well. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So the Lord knows all who are his. So, again, you just see that he is able to guard, he's able to entrust. This is, as Paul's saying, he says, I suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him. What is he entrusted to him? His very life, for instance. I mean, by the time that this letter's coming about, mm-hmm. Paul knows he's on death row. He's in chains, If am I, am I correct in that? I think this is one, I'm pretty sure. It's like he knows what's going on. He mm-hmm. knows that he's come to the end of his line, the end of his race. And he's encouraging Timothy in this to continue on to fight and run the good race. And he yeah. knows that he has. He says that he has. I think that's here in chapter three or four. Who has saved us and called us to a holy calling. I was talking about here in Second Timothy 4, 8, where Paul understands, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So Paul knows that his time has come here at the end. And he says that he's fought the good fight and finished the race, and he's kept the faith. But I think if you look back through scripture, Paul understands that Faith came from God, that Mm -hmm. God was the one who helped to 
give that faith to him to push towards it. Yeah. I mean, Paul did write Romans. <laughs> That's a pretty big one. I mean, Paul wrote Romans, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, First, mm-hmm. Second Timothy, Titus. Dare we say Hebrews? I don't know. I won't claim that one. <laughs> Most people will, though. I'm in that camp. I think it's a, I've heard good arguments by, by James White and Tom Buck that it's uh, Luke writing Paul's theology. And I think that's a good, I think that's where I'm going to rest my hat on that. First time I've heard that one. Yeah. But I could see it, I guess. Yeah. Maybe it could be Apollos writing Paul's theology. <laughs> Maybe Apollos. Could explain the wording. Do you know who the real author is? God. There you go. <laughs> um, so all this, I know we haven't exhaustively looked at all the verses, but... They all clearly point towards it. Shows yeah. the fact that God works in us to help keep us, to guard us, to yeah. preserve us. And that no one can snatch us out of his hand, that we are secure. So we have all that. What about maybe some of the objections? Two objections. The first one, I'll let Colton go over the Hebrews one because he really likes the book of Hebrews. It's one of his favorite books. (laughs) It is one of my favorite books. It's only because he likes coffee. But Hebrews. A second one we kind of pointed out earlier or I guess maybe this is the third one, is that people believe, if we say perseverance of the saints, that it's on the saints to do the work to preserve themselves, or that saints don't have to do anything because if God elects you, then no matter what, God's going to get you there to heaven. Mm-hmm. And I want, and we said this quite a bit, but I think that that argument totally misses the point of what Christianity is. Mm-hmm. Because if you say that if God's going to elect a person to get them to heaven, well, then God's ultimately going to follow the means that he has laid out for a person to be saved to get them to heaven. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are some instances where on a person's dying bed that they've come to saving faith. But ultimately, God has certain ways that they're going to come to faith. And then not sitting back and not hearing, not repenting, and then getting to heaven, that doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. That's not following what Scripture clearly teaches about a person who's going to come to a saving faith from God. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's kind of frustrating to hear that argument sometimes, because for one, that argument's invalid. Mm -hmm. You're not even reading your Scripture yourself if you think that's what we believe. It's a straw man argument. Mm-hmm. Into the epitome of a straw man argument where you take a basic, a truth, if I guess you want to say it that, and you strip it down of all merit and then you push it over. Right. It's kind of like setting up your opponent's side or argument mm-hmm. and kind of building it up the way that you want so that you can knock it down. Mm-hmm. Now, guarantee there are times where people ultimately have valid viewpoints of doing this. Mm hmm. And there are definitely people who give Reformed theology and Calvinism good arguments to not look at these. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is I'm tired of some of these other arguments, like the one of people sitting back and things like that. 
mm-hmm. and using that as an argument against Calvinism. Yeah. To play the harp of history here, it's such a, to me, it's such a straw man argument by simply just looking at history. That's why when we look at history, we can see some of the greatest missionaries in the world have been Calvinists, have been Reformed. William Carey, in particular Baptist movement, Reformed. I'm trying to think of a few other ones. I mean, we need to point any further than Charles Spurgeon, who started multiple orphanages and uh, did m- so much good in his community. I mean, John Calvin sent the first missionaries to Brazil. So it's not a good argument by either theological points, nor is it a good argument historically. Because historically, we have believed what we've believed, and we can, you can simply look and say, hey, they're pretty consistent. So... I just want to make sure, I know we've reharped on this argument every day, almost, or at least every episode, not every day, but we want to make sure that it's clear mm-hmm. that that is not what we believe, and we're trying to expound on it, why we believe that you should stop using this argument, because yes. it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Yes. Please, if you've used the argument, please stop. That's all we're asking, is just please stop. All right. And then some people want to point to the objection of Judas Iscariot. Mm-hmm. Wasn't he one of the 12 and yet he was lost? Yep, he was. And Doesn't that disprove perseverance of the saints? Let's see. Is John... In one of the episodes we talked about John, and we talked about how Jesus knew what the people around him were believing. And John specifically states that Jesus knew that one of them was going to betray him right then and there. And this isn't like super later on in John. It's in John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And who it was who would betray him. From the beginning of when he called those disciples together, he knew that Judas was going to be the one to betray Mm -hmm. him. Yeah. Clearly put out there. He goes on to say in a few verses later in 70, after all that have left, and he says, Jesus answered them and said, did I not myself choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is is the devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And so you have, yeah, just the nail in the coffin. He knew who was going to betray him from day one. And it's crazy that somebody would even want to try to use that. Yeah. I mean. It's a really, so it's really just not a good argument. No, not at all. I mean, whatever picture you want to try to paint Judas in. I mean, 
God knew that Judas was going to betray Jesus no matter what. Yeah. So it kind of defeats the purpose when you're trying to use Judas as the example when he already, well, decreed that Judas would do what he did. But there is other examples. I think probably the, in my opinion, one of the strongest, I guess, would be the word I would want to use. I'm pretty sure strongest is, I mean, this is the one that really makes it look like a person could lose their salvation, for sure. It's here in Hebrews 6. Yeah, Hebrews 6, which this is a very, to be honest, is a very tough book. So what we'll do is let's read it. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll kind of dive in and start dissecting it a little bit. So, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washing and laying on of hands, and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and and the powers of the age to come and have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. So, at a cursory look, you can see that this would teach falling away. I mean, it literally teaches it. I mean, I guess is the right word to put it. Yeah. Because yeah. It, it's clearly what it states grammatically and if you just read it at face value if you just read it at face value that's exactly but again context is key so i know we've said that we've said it and we've said it again but context is key and up to this point the importance is this is what the author of hebrews has painted to this point in the book So chapter 4, he talks about entering the rest, the believer's rest. So he talks about this rest being of Israel has wanted to enter, and he ends it and says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in the time of need. So, he's saying that we can enter this rest, that we have entered this rest. He he gives the example of Joshua, for if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So, there remained the Sabbath rest for the people of God, for the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from himself, or from his Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. 
For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, you have the rest. This rest is Christ. Christ, his work, God's work, is the rest that we are to enter. We are to find this rest. We are to take solace in this rest. Now, that tallies into chapter 5. Chapter 5 discusses the perfect high priest. Who is this perfect high priest? Well, it is no other than Christ himself. It talks about Christ being the perfect high priest after the order of Melchizedek. It says in chapter 5, verse 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who has said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, You are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Being designated by God as a high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning him, we have much to say. It is hard to explain since you have become dual of hearing. So, and then this kind of tallies into chapter 6. So, what has he stated so far? He stated in 4, we've entered a rest. Who's this rest in? It's in Christ. What is this rest being, you should say, defined by? It's being defined by Christ's perfect high, high priestliness, the fact that he lives forever, the fact that he can atone. And it says in verse 4, and no one takes the honor of himself, but receives it when he is called by God. So this Christ has been appointed by God. This is, he's the high priest, okay? We enter his rest. He's a perfect high priest. And then we get to chapter 6. Now, what is he talking about here? I think it's important, this little section between 5 and 6, which really start, I read part of it, chapter 5, verse 9, and it runs into 6. This is a key part into what, I believe it's the Apostle Paul, but who the author of Hebrews is talking about. Being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, concerning him we have much to say, it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good from evil. Then, this is one of the most comical statements in all of scripture to me the six one therefore leading the elementary teaching about christ let us press on to maturity not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works of faith towards god of instruction about washings and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment that is elementary i'm dumbfounded that is elementary i mean it shows the immaturity maybe of me but, I mean, we have books written on any number of these things, and this is flippantly passed off as an elementary teaching that we're going to skip by so that we can get to the heart here. 
And this we will do if God permits. And then he says, For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift, now, who is this book being written to? We've always said this is the, the point, the question you have to ask. Who is the book of Hebrews being written to? No, the, not, the name is a pretty good example of who it's being written to. <laughs> it's being written to the Hebrews. It's being written to those Christians who are basically, you could say in a sense, in between the covenants. They are still living in the Old Covenant times. You have sacrifices still being offered, but they're new covenant. We can't really sympathize with that today, you know, very much because of where we're at. Right. Well, you haven't had to deal with the Old Covenant. There's no temple to make sacrifices. Uh, no. Sacrifices of something that's so far out of the mind of Americans nowadays that it no. doesn't make any sense for us. Yeah. It's like, it's so far out there. And these, these individuals. Well, who, let me say sacrifices in the instance that this is talking about. Because okay. no, there's definitely some mumbo jumbo stuff that people go through daily to think that it's going to help them out and bless their life. Yeah. This sacrifice is literally taking the lamb and killing it. You know, this is a literal sacrifice. The sacrifice is instituted to Moses. Right. This is these sacrifices. And these Jewish Christians who are caught in between and they're being called, they have been... They believe that Jesus Christ died for their sins, but they still have this feeling of what to do with what Moses has taught them, what has been a part yeah, of their life their whole time that they've been absolutely drilled and trained to know. And these people, we, as an American individualistic society, we tend to think of religion so separate from family. In reality, this time period, in your family usually practice the same religion that you had. So being a Jew you would have been pressured to go to synagogue, to go to temple, offer sacrifices, do these things. Why? Because you're supposed to do them, but every time you offer a sacrifice, what are you doing? Well, the author of Hebrews tells you you're defaming the one sacrifice because what you're saying is the sacrifice of Christ was not good enough. Now, the whole book of Hebrews is written to those Christians that are in between, that are being pushed and pressured back into the old covenant by many different sources. We don't really know of any particular source, but we know that they're being pushed, being pressured into these things. And because they're being pressured into these things, you have, let's say, bring it back to America, you have what you have today in a different sense. I mean, I'm saying these two polar opposites, but we still have it today, where you have those that have come into the church. They've, I'm going to do air quotes, walked with God for 20 years, um, and then they fall away. Did they really fall away? What fruit was in their life? What it, what actually happened? What change was happened? Well, they send them to teaching. That's a great condemnation. When much is given, much is expected. If you sit under teaching for 20 years and you never have any fruit of the Spirit, there is no change in your life, I say that there was no true change to begin with. First John um, 2.19, they went out from us because they were not really of us. These people weren't really there. Now, they went out. They did all the things. They, they did what we call were civil virtues. Like, yeah. where, yes, this is a good thing that happens that they do. 
These are things that they could do to help get the message of the gospel out. Mm-hmm. But giving it out and living it out are two different things. Mm-hmm. You can say it all day long that you want, but that doesn't mean that it applies to you. You yeah. can have a head knowledge, but you that doesn't mean you have a heart knowledge. Amen. Exactly. You know, they can acquire and as much facts as they want, but it doesn't constitute an actual change. And these individuals walking, the hardest person to convert is someone that's sat in the pew for 20 years. It's the hardest person to convert. Why? Because they've been so calloused to the teaching that it no longer has the impact. They are trying to re-crucify Christ. And that's what this passage is talking about. Those that have walked through, those that are, as it laid out there in the latter verses of chapter 5, those that they're not teaching, those that are so spiritually immature, they're not growing in their faith. There is no faith there. There's nothing there. There's no substance to the essence that should be coming out, should be working forth. There's nothing there. And so what is he doing? He's passing over the elementary teachings. Why? Because they don't understand them. They're not growing in their faith. They're not actually, this is going to be tough, they're not actually Christians. They're not actually there. And what does that constitute? It's those people are so hardened that it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they've already made a public profession. Maybe you have people that have made a public profession I mean, pride, there's so many things that get in the way of someone actually coming to Christ. Maybe there's so much baggage into that. And what this is, what this whole Hebrews 6 is, is, is focusing on is that dichotomy. And the proof is the way it flushes out. So I've given you the context before and after. I'm going to give it to you after. And this is so important because this is a tough verse. I don't want to pass this over and just flippantly throw this off. This is a tough verse. But, verse 9, chapter 6, But, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name, and ministered in ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could could swear by nothing greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, for men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is the end of every dispute. In the same way, God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeablessness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner 
for us, have become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That whole junction, you know, this is the danger of taking out when the author is making an argument. It's the danger of, of Romans, too. You know, you jump into the book of Romans and you want to just grab a section. It's so hard to do that because it's so connected. And the book of Hebrews is so connected. It's really hard to jump in and just say, this verse, verse, means, yeah. Yeah, this verse means that. Ah, there was so much more before that. And so what's the context before and after? Really explains in between. And what he's talking about is those individuals who have walked, who are concerned about going back, he's warning them. He's saying, if you go back, there remains nothing for you. There is no sacrifice. Why? Because the perfect sacrifice has already came. There is no more high priest. Why? Because the perfect high priest I've already explained to you. There's there's nothing to go back to. It's Christ or nothing. Absolutely. And he's saying, if you turn back from Christ, there's nothing left for you. He's giving them hard words. But he tells them that they can have an anchor that you can be assured of your salvation, essentially, is what he's saying. So if, well, I believe it's the Apostle Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is schizophrenic. Or it makes sense. He's warning those who really aren't there for the essence. As John chapter 6, what did those who had seen the feeding of the 5,000 and those who had followed Christ? A large crowd afterwards followed Christ. They... We're following them for the blessings. The blessing they were for healing the sick, for healing the bread, but they weren't in it for worshiping God in spirit, as what Jesus will say in John chapter three. Yeah, so they were they were there for the smells and bells, but they weren't there for him. Right. You know, I think chuckle at Paul Washer when he says everybody wants to go to heaven. You know, the only problem is they don't want God to be there when they get there. And that's those people. And they wanted all the works. They just didn't want God. Yeah, they want heaven as they see it. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the case, or end of the day, it's really asking, what does what is heaven going to look like with God in it? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> but that's, it's going to be glorious. I mean, it's going to be amazing. It's going to be, yeah. I don't even know. I mean, it's kind of keeping the end in sight, I guess, is a way that this kind of really doctrine puts it. Mm-hmm. It kind of goes back to the point of spiritual disciplines. If you take a person who's training to do something, whether it play baseball, whether it's play piano, whether become an Olympian, whatever you're doing, and say... Somebody could take you a few years down the road, right? Mm-hmm. And you're there in Bush Stadium as a starting pitcher. You're there at Powell Symphony Hall playing in a symphony. Or you're doing something important. Heck, maybe even the president sometime. Mm-hmm. And you can see that the end result. And you go back to where you were practicing before. And if you know what's going to happen later down the road, is that going to push you to practice even less? Or is that going to push you the extra edge to give you more confidence? Because you know this is what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. 
perseverance of the saints doesn't let us just lie to the side. It gives us the confidence and the hope to keep on pushing more in the disciplines, to grow in our relationship with God. Mm-hmm. It really opens up our eyes to what God does for us mm-hmm. and what God has done in us. Mm-hmm. Not so that we'll sit back and be in a pew and maybe talk to somebody, but that it really yearns our hearts and affections towards God mm-hmm. and that God doesn't leave us where we are, but that he continues to inform us and transform us into the image of his son, mm-hmm. which is ultimately the image of him mm-hmm. because Jesus is God in flesh. And I'm so thankful that he reminds us of this because I need it. Mm-hmm. You need it. Absolutely. Everyone needs to be reminded of the gospel daily. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we need to be saved each and every day. But the beauty of the gospel to help conform us, to transform us, mm-hmm. is what's needed. Because it's not just something that happens in a day. It's not even something that happens in a year. It's something that happens from the time you were saved to when you die. Mm -hmm. If you're not being changed in that time, then it's time for some meditation and reflection. I think it's a Hebrews 6 moment. I think if you can look, I think that's why Hebrews 6 was there. Um, I don't think Hebrews 6 is there for the purpose of scaring individuals into salvation, because I don't think that's a a reality. But it is there to realign yourself. Where are you at with your walk? Maybe got your foot in both worlds. Do you have your foot on the things of God, but at the same time, you know, you're trying to go about this in such a worldly way? Are you... You know, you want a pinch of God plus something else. The thing is, the way Christianity flourished, when Christianity really came forth in the first century, it was not bad to have, no one had a problem with Christ. No one had a problem with you saying Christ was God. No one had a problem with you saying anything about God. The problem was saying he was the only God problem was saying that he's the only god to the exclusion of every other god absolutely that's the problem the exclusivity of christ because no one had a problem with you saying he's god that's great you know act 17 paul walks into the areopagus and what does he say you know there's many gods you have around here but i'm gonna tell you about the one god that you don't know you know, they had no problem hearing him about another God. And what they had a problem with was him saying he's the only God. Absolutely. That's the problem that we have today as well is mm-hmm. that he's the only God, but that he is to be our Lord mm-hmm. is a big issue for American Christianity. Yeah. Because it's not something we understand. Yeah. We don't understand lordship. No, we don't. And I think that's because we live in an American culture that's so... Republican. I don't mean that in, in the normal in, sense, but like 
the actual the government the government system yeah. of a republic of a republic is is how I, I mean that, and I think that's because we are such you know, we're in that way we're not used to the lordship aspect of anything, so we should do I, th- I think church history is a great example to learn a lot of, but Christians, if you're listening to this, please check yourself. I mean, even if you've been walking with God for 20, 30 years, check yourself. I think this is a great plumb line. Yeah, I mean, if you're not examining yourself anyways, I mean, mm-hmm. if you're not in the Word doing it daily, then how are you going to know? Uh, yeah. I think that's one of the things that I like about Reformed theology is that it points out that we can't understand our sin until we see God. Mm-hmm. Until God acts and intervenes. Yeah. I think it's something that's clearly laid out in Scripture is that without God showing us how sinful we are, we don't understand it. Mm-hmm. You just really don't understand how far you are from God till you have an Isaiah moment where not the literal presence of God, but but God, you know, appears in your life and... You know, it's woe is me. Who am I that you have bestowed something on me that I, that I don't even deserve to be in your presence, Lord? Mm-hmm. I mean, Jesus to the Pharisees, the men who thought they were following God to the letter. Mm-hmm. And Jesus showed them how far away they were. By appealing to their hearts. You know. mm-hmm. And showing them how corrupt and how sinful they were. Yeah. You think back through... All the Old Testament, it took God showing them how holy he was for Mm -hmm. them to understand it. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what the Ten Commandments are for. Is there a way to show how sinful, how inadequate we are, and how much we really can't keep God's word? I think that because of our inadequacy, because of the holiness of God, it all leads to the fact of all these five points. And it culminates in this perseverance because we have fallen, because there leaves nothing for us to bring to the table, that it's all of God and that we can rest so assured that it's only God's work in us. It doesn't rest on your shoulders. And if you're struggling with your salvation, if you're struggling with how do you know you're saved, the problem is you need to quit struggling and give up. I mean, give it to God. If you have felt God's presence in your life, are you fighting with him or you're relinquishing it to him? If you relinquish everything to God, you can rest by the fact that God will accomplish what he says he will, just as he does with everything else. That God is faithful to keep his promises. Yes. We are so far from being faithful, but he is. If you really want to look at how faithful God is, don't even look at the New Testament. You, I mean, that's great aspects mm-hmm. of it because you see Jesus Christ come. But look at the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, you looked at that covenant to where we talked about Abram earlier, right? Mm-hmm. It's fulfilled. Yeah. Obviously, Israel just became a nation again a few years ago. But he gave the people that land. Mm-hmm. He did it through Joshua. He brought them back again from Persia. Mm-hmm. And the king Xerxes, think that was the king at the time. I might get my kings mixed up, but he rebuilds Jerusalem. 
Mm-hmm. And then when the Romans take over from the Medes and the Persians, still gives the temple again. And still God then comes back and saves us through Jesus Christ. I mean, God willingly does this. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, time and time again, when he has every right to start a new people anytime he wants to. Because he's the creator mm-hmm. and he's God. He ultimately has the right to throw us away if he wants to. Mm-hmm. But he has given us the promise that he won't. Right. That if he started that wonderful work in your life, he will accomplish it. He will accomplish it. Not you. Not right. you. You go back and you look at Noah as well. The time the people were so dreadfully wicked that he, after he did it once, he's like, I won't do it again. Mm-hmm. I won't flood this world again. Because, I mean, it's crazy just how gracious God is. Because mm-hmm. even in that moment, he knew what we were going to be like later on. Mm-hmm. And he still made that promise. That's a merciful and loving God. I mean, we can look at, I think, any true Christian who's experienced the wonderful mercy and grace of God can look at their own life and say, Lord, you are so merciful to me. I mean, I look back at my life and I see so many times that I wanted to do such bad things, um, terrible things. But yet I didn't. I don't know why. Looking back, I don't know why I didn't do some of those things. There wasn't that, you know, stuff wasn't there. I don't know why I didn't do it. I mean, I don't think I can look back and say, is that was the grace of God. It was God's mercy. It's mercy that I didn't deserve because my heart did not want God. I wanted everything but God. But he was so merciful. And yet I still fell a lot and did a lot of terrible things but yet he kept me from so much Absolutely. i think i think we all can say that at some point mm-hmm. well guys thanks for listening as we wrap up this series on the five points of calvinism or tulip and we're so thankful that you've been listening to us you can find us on itunes you can find us on amazon spotify Tune in radio. I think iHeart is on there as well. Feel free to message us on Facebook. Leave us a comment on iTunes and a five star review if you want. I mean, <laughs> absolutely. Please do, but we'll take whatever review you give us. I mean, we want feedback. We want to be yeah. better. We want to become better at this because we love doing this. This is something we really enjoy now. Mm-hmm. And it's actually, I know it's helping. To enlighten my walk a lot. Yeah. I mean, I've been struggling here lately, but tonight's kind of really opened my eyes and kind of pointed me back towards needing to step up again, which I'm really thankful for. Our next series is going to be on Lamentations. Oh, man. We're so excited. No, oh. Actually, I'm, I'm really excited for this. I'm not lamenting it. <laughs> but so keep that in mind and... Thanks again as we try to be conformed to the image of God through Scripture. My name's Logan Batisti. And my name is Colton Wright. Good night. And God bless. <laughs>